1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
0: My own taste for music came, believe it or not, with the Bay City Rollers. Jesse. I love it. Okay. Bay City Rollers it was. And my brother was a sweet fan. Okay. So we had the complete pull po- and there was this like fake Fight between the Bay City Rollers and Sweet back then and the pop magazines, the, the Sweet, the hard rock band called the Bay Rollers Sissies and the Bay City Rollers called these guys, whatever they called them. But it was, it was really interesting. And I've always liked danceable music because I loved to dance. Then I went completely all in disco, Gloria Gaynor, the Pointer Sisters of course, Saturday Night Fever, Bee Gees, the whole nine yards, as long as you could dance it. I loved it.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. We are getting off the Bruce train today, though I'm sure he will come up, as he often does. And we are talking to a growth architect. And you may be asking, what is that? We're going to find out together. But my guest today reaches out and said she'd love to talk music. She'd love to talk podcasting. Bianca welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much, Jesse, for having me. I think it's going to be a very unusual podcast for me where maybe we don't talk just about business. We talk about life, other things, music and maybe a little bit of business.
1: Yeah, I love that. It, I often get that feedback of when we I set up the appointment And uh, we both are part of a um, kind of a matching service to pull the curtain back a little bit. And my guests will go, you, I can just talk about music. Yeah, that's it. I don't have to talk about spreadsheets or budgets (laughs) or plans. No, no, we're going to get music. That's great. Um, Tell us a little about yourself.
0: Yeah. So I am Beate Chalet, the growth architect. And what that really means is that I help people to land planes. So I work with a lot of creative people, visionaries, non-conforming people that don't fit the regular mold. I come from the creative industries. I was in photography. I've always worked with a lot of artists, lots of musicians in my career on the photography side of things. And I am better at the business side than the artistic side even though I have a photography degree and I wanted to take that and then bring that ability to help people that have these ideas that often stumble in the dark trying to make anything happen and help them to put a business around what they're passionate about because the creative arts and I'm I love the arts is so critical in how we view the world and how healthy we are and how well balanced we are and what inspires us. So it gives us hope a song can take us in like a nanosecond. You know, I can talk all day long and I play your favorite song and I didn't need a half hour to do that. I need 30, 60 seconds of your favorite song and you already dancing. So there is something to be said about combining passion with a good business sense because how good it is if you have that song that will make other people happy and then nobody hears it because you can't figure out the business side of things. So I've been really in service of a lot of people just helping them to, as I said, land planes.
1: Yeah, one of the things that I love it and I'm frustrated about is a better phrase, is studies show that students who are involved in the arts, whether it's music or art, sculpturing, painting. They actually are better students. They are better at math. They are better at science. They are better at literature. And yet we tend to cut funding for arts in schools. And that's frustrating because I think we all have that artistic side. And I think it should be nurtured and and taught because we become stronger, better individuals with that background, that creativity.
0: A hundred percent. If you look at the educational system in general, what the promise of it was the really uh, the post-industrial revolution, it was to create little status quo workers. And so they had existing information. Existing information was presented to you. You needed to learn it, uh, be able to repeat it. And then you got an A and we have a whole army of people like that. But if we look at it from a logical perspective, where do these people go that take existing information reinforce existing information and then they get rewarded for following the rules. That's government. And that's at the post office. And not that there's anything wrong with that. We need obviously people that are doing things by the rules, but that is not innovation. That is status quo. So that's what's wrong with the way the system is set up because the system is built for status quo. And so we take the people that are the best within the status quo of the logical parameters so that we can measure how quickly can you solve a math equation? How good are you at calculus? That's measurable. But how do I know if it's a good painting? How do I know if it's a good song? How do I know if it was great, a a great performance? So what's the measurement of that is that my emotional connection to it. And then what grade do I give it? And that is a double whammy if you really want to know, because a double whammy is so you're going to have to figure this out on your own because there is no parameter. And then you have to tell everybody who tells you that you can't do it to basically shove it because you know better. So you're up against the general idea that you are wasting your time and what you do is useless and to get a real job. And then you still have to learn the part of the real job, which is how does this world work with marketing and sales? Because unless you want to be a broke artist, I would say the Bohemian lifestyle only looks great on TV or in a musical, but not in real life.
1: The, no matter what you want to do, you're that bohemian, but you've got to be able to figure out what is my worth? What is my value? And how do I sell myself?
0: Yeah, because if you are, I have a great example on that. So I was giving a program and I had a photographer who participated and then she said to me, I feel that my work is like the pearl in the oyster. And I Jesse, I blurted it out. I swear I didn't even think about it. And I said, good luck waiting for a diver. Because if you think about your work as this, as this hidden gem somewhere that only a few people are going to be let in, the only person who's broke is you. Yes. Because everybody else who wants to buy art or invest in a musician will go to the place where they can find them. They're not gonna look for you. You have to have a top of mind awareness. You have to be in front of them. And if you're not, then you're not gonna even be in the ball game at all. Like you you're nowhere to be found. And if you're nowhere to be found, it means nowhere to make money.
1: Absolutely. I always like to start at the beginning. So where did you grow up? And was there a lot of music in the household as you as a child?
0: So I grew up in Germany and I came to the United States when I was in my early 20s. And there was a lot of music in our house, but it was all opera. It was all classical music. Both of my parents were big classical music fans. They would go to lots of concerts and operas. They would go to the Wagner Festival in Salzburg in in Austria. And when we were driving to go skiing, We'd listen to Wagner Overtures, which I still to this day really love. I, I I, do know Vivaldi's Four Seasons and I because that's just how we grew up. And we went to a lot of uh, concerts and things like that. My own taste for music came, believe it or not, with the Bay City Rollers. Jesse, I love it. OK, Bay City Rollers, it was. And my brother was a sweet fan. OK, so. We had the complete pull, and there was this like fake fight between the Bay City rollers and sweet back then and the pop magazines, the, the sweet, the hard rock band called the Bay Rollers Sissies, and the Bay City Rollers called these guys whatever they call them. But it was it was really interesting. And I've always liked danceable music because I loved to dance. Then I went completely all in disco. Gloria Gaynor, the Pointer Sisters, of course, Saturday Night Fever, Bee Gees, the whole nine yards, as long as you could dance it. I loved it.
1: I love that. Have you, do you continue to enjoy classical music?
0: Not as much as I used to. I've been doing a lot more musicals. I When I came to the United States and I realized that there was a whole genre called musicals, because the only thing that we went to was operas and operettes, which is the musical version, the original musical version of an opera, where there is the difference between an opera and an operette is that there's talking in between, whereas the opera is completely sung. And when I I discovered that there's a musical called Hair, and there's Tommy, and there's all these great musicals that there was a whole genre that I didn't even know about. so. It became like my thing with me and my daughter. So when I had a daughter, we went, I did the same thing with her that I, I did the Los Angeles Philharmonic. So I live in Los Angeles has this Toyota's children's Series concerts that they do where the orchestra is like in t-shirts and jeans. And on Sundays you go and the tickets are cheap with your kids. Like there's thousands, there's hundreds and hundreds of kids in the audience and they teach him what a string is and they play a Peter and the Wolf and these kinds of things. So that's how I started with my daughter. And my daughter went to Columbia College to study musical theater because she got completely hooked over time in the musical, but she also started with classical music. And then when I spoke to the Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra as a speaker about diversity, And that was what like was right as we got out of COVID, let's say about almost two years ago. And I stood there and I told them, and my daughter literally just had recorded her first song. And I said, I said, just so you know, I said, you didn't know this, but because of what you do, you inspired my child to go into music and record her own song. And that was such a powerful 360 on how this whole thing came all the way around. The very orchestra that was responsible for discovering my daughter's love for music, then I could share with them on how that really played
1: out in in the real world. I love that story. That is so amazing.
2: Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win.
1: And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package.
2: And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So
1: just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship
0: outside the US.
1: You mentioned that you started as a photographer. Where did that interest come from? When did you start? liking taking pictures?
0: I always was interested in, I'm a very visual person. So I realized in school that I was told that I wasn't that smart because I couldn't figure out how to do Latin and math was really not exactly my favorite subject. But I always liked the arts and I didn't want to do something that didn't interest me. So we took an aptitude test in Germany, and everything in Germany is always taken very seriously, just in case you wonder, Jesse, it, that that part is yes, true. Yes. We do it, yeah, ja, genau. It must be 1, 2, Follow the rules, A, B, C. And so for 16 pages, I'm filling out this aptitude test, and it says at the very it it's asked me questions like, Do you like being outside? I love being outside. Do you mind carrying heavy, heavy loads? No, I'm healthy, I'm young, and I can carry a thing or two. Okay. Are you afraid of heights? No, I'm not afraid of heights and I'm like doing my thing. And then sure. at the end of it. Guess what the aptitude test said I should be
1: what I I don't even want. I'm assuming some kind of uh construction worker.
0: A hundred percent. He wanted me to be a roofer. <laughs> OK, <laughs> and then I look at her and she looks at me and I'm going like, oh, no no, yeah. and not that there's anything wrong with roofers. And if you're a roofer and you're listening to this, by all means, thank you for putting the shingles and keeping us uh, yes. dry. But and that I was not. admire
1: how I, I have my stepfather spent some time roofing and I'd watch and I was amazed at how with that slant, they're so firm footed that, yes, it's a totally different skill. So I get that. But yes, I could see you're going, really? That's what you think I'm supposed to do?
0: Yeah. And then she says, OK, fine. Let's talk about what else do you want to be? And I said, I would like to be a jewelry designer. And she makes a funny face and she says, oh, there's too many applicants and not enough jobs. What else do you want to be? I said, oh, I know a textile designer. Somebody's got to design all these fabrics. And she goes, "Ooh, too many applicants, not enough jobs. What else do you want to be? And yeah, you know where this story is going. And I said, a photographer. And guess what she said, Jesse?
1: There's too many. There's too many of them and not enough jobs.
0: Exactly. And then she says to me, why don't you become a secretary? I'm going like, okay, hold on. How do we get from the roofer to all the things I want to do to now being a secretary? And I'm like, sorry, lady, but I don't think this is leading anywhere. So I learned very early on that what other people interpreted my skills to be probably wasn't going to work. And so I became a photographer anyway. So only to
1: go ahead. ahead. Yeah, I'm going to ask you some more, but I I had a story for you. For the longest time, I, I could not stand consultants. And since then, I've gotten over my fear and I've realized there are good consultants and bad consultants. But my issue with consultants is they would come into the company where I'm working and they would ask questions. And what is your biggest pain point? And I would say staffing. I'm having trouble finding people, keeping them going. Oh, so what I really heard you say is that your systems don't talk to each other. And if your systems talk to each other better, it would be, you'd be easier to take, keep employees. I'm like, that isn't what I said at all. I I understand you're selling a system that talks, so you want my answer to be, that's what you want me to say my biggest problem is, but that isn't it. So I have the same thing. Then with your discussion, you could have been, okay, if I have to get through this, you just tell me what you think I should be. I'm going to ignore it anyway, and now we can get out of this meeting quicker.
0: Uh, Basically, it is like that because what it shows you is that people have an agenda and their agenda is their agenda and it's not about you. And the minute you find out it's not about you, you shut down. And I think that's why probably a lot of consultants have a really bad rap because they're they're so attached to their solution and that's the solution that they're selling. So every problem that you have naturally has to be able to be solved with their solution, even if it can't. I think internet marketing, just go in a complete tangent here, but- I think internet marketing has perfected this idea because the internet marketing idea from the big internet marketers on whether it's Harmosi now or Grant Cardone or Russell Brunson or whoever there is out there, their entire idea is that they've taken this entire market and they divided it. So you go to this guy, Pete Vargas, who will teach you how to speak from stage. So then you learn how to speak from stage. Then there is a Jeff Walker that's coming in and Jeff Walker says, if you speak from stage, you're going to need an offer and you need a a product launch. So now you learn how to launch a product, but you don't have a product. So guess what? The The next affiliate offer that's coming in is the person that's helping you to do the product. Now guess what's next? Now Russell Brunson comes as well. You really need to put everybody in a funnel because you have to capture them and then you have to nurture them. So now you need to be building a funnel. So you're now what? We have $50,000 in and we are three years into this whole process and you still don't have a business. You still don't have a strategy and you still wait for that one thing where the domino effect actually starts to happen. And I think with, because there's such bad hygiene in the consulting space, because I do consider them coaches and consultants and they do great work. It's not that, but the way the information is being presented is just wrong. The way we need to present the information is always, let me, allow me to listen to what you need. And then I'm going to tell you, and we tell people we talk to, we tell them that we tell you if we can help you. And if I do, I will tell you what the solution is. I will tell you if I cannot help you. And if I cannot help you and I know somebody who can help you, I will tell you who that person is. Because ultimately, my services come in at a certain point in the journey is when you have all these things and now you need a strategy on how they even connect and what the business model is. That's when you come to me typically after you're ready to spend a whole bunch of money on other things and you're still confused because none of this connects. That's what we do. We make things connect. Or you come to us before you buy anything, which would be my ideal scenario, because then you have a plan of what you actually need to then learn as a skill that fits into your business model. I think that's a much better way to do it, but people have to learn at their own pace. So now with that tangent completed, the idea is for us to look at, what makes you happy? What do you want to do? And then what are the skills that you need to learn to be successful at that? And then you're going to have to do sure. the learning.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned, and you, I think you were going to go there and we went on a very entertaining tangent. You became a photographer, but you found that you liked the business part more than the creative side. Tell me a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, as my career as a photographer began, I was starting out as an assistant. And as an assistant, my job was to make photo jobs happen. And so there's this moment where I'm in Switzerland on top of a glacier. And my job was to figure out how to get a helicopter that would take an Audi Quattro to the top of the glacier for a photo shoot. And so there's this moment where I'm literally at the glacier and I'm looking to my right and you hear the the helicopter blade noise and there it is. And then the helicopter comes and there's this string on it and below the string is this big net and there's this big helicopter and it flies over and it drops the car uh, on top of the glacier. And what goes through my mind is number one, I'm outside, I'm schlepping and I'm not afraid of heights. Yes, (laughs)
1: I guess they had a point, but instead of roofer, they should have said getting cars on top of glaciers. And I don't know if there was a full-time role in that, but that is at least I qualified for that.
0: Yes. And that kind of was when I realized that there was something about this ability that I had to make things happen that would allow me to still be in my passion, which is being around artists and making stuff happen. But in this case, I didn't land a plane, I landed a car on a glacier. But I loved that. I loved solving these problems and making things happen. And that's then when I pivoted into production, artist representation, eventually stock photography, and now consulting.
1: Did, I I think, That road to Damascus moment is so important that sometimes we find that where I had a similar experience. I was selling car insurance over the phone. And I realized after a few months that the part I really loved was when someone would call and say, my husband is going to lose his job if we don't keep this car insurance, but I'm not going to get paid till blank. We're going to lose our insurance. He's going to lose his job. And I went, okay, let's figure out how to do this. And I would come up with a solution. I would work out things to do. And I realized that solving people's problems is what brings me joy, helping other people. And in fact, my LinkedIn profile says I take unhappy customers and make them happy. Because that's what I love to do. And it is, there is people like Bruce Springsteen that pick up a guitar and know this is what I want to do the rest of my life. But a lot of us, we have to go through that journey, don't we, to try to figure out where I want to be and what's going to be my passion.
0: You do know that his sister is a photographer, right?
1: Yes, I do know that. Yes. A very successful one.
0: Very successful one, and I met her many times in Los oh. Angeles in the scene. Yes.
1: Oh, neat. That's yeah, it good. took me a
0: little bit of time to figure out that Springsteen and Springsteen <laughs> maybe may maybe related. <laughs> and then they go, "Oh yeah, that's Bruce. That's Bruce's sister." I'm like, oh, "Okay,
1: <laughs> that's pretty funny." She has her own identity, right? So she, she has her own identity. What I'd love is, I'm sure there are people that go that are in the photography world go, Hey, um, to him, are you Pam Springsteen's brother? (laughs) And I'm sure that would make him incredibly proud of his little sister. He see I've seen her on stage a couple of times, not in person, but on videos where she will join him on stage. And he looks like a very proud big brother.
0: Yes, I think so. I've never seen them together in that sense, but right. But because I was in the industry, And the industry is very incestuous there. And there's a lot of gossip, but I've never heard any gossip that was negative.
1: Okay, that's nice. So what was the, when you had your road to Damascus moment and you're going, maybe I, because I can get things done, maybe I want to do this. What was the next steps for you?
0: It was, I remained a photographer assistant and then I wanted to go into the magazine world and I applied for jobs that were along the lines of the business of photography and on page eight of a newspaper, not the classifieds and not the job board, but on page eight of the newspaper that I've read was an ad for a new magazine that was coming. That was like a kind of a hip, cool magazine that was coming to Germany. And I applied, I didn't even know what a photo editor was. And I just applied with a sassy, sassy letter. Hey, it's a magazine. You're going to need somebody who's managing photography. Why don't you, why don't you bring me on? And they didn't hire me as a full-time employee, but they hired me as a full-time intern. So I worked as an intern, but I was the only one in the photography department. So I was effectively the photo editor, but I got the salary of a, of an intern, very smartly done. And eventually they gave me what's called the editor recognition. Is that when you graduate from being an intern to an editor. And then my next job was being the photo editor at L magazine. And I never even submitted a resume. I went there for an hour interview and I walked out being the photo editor at L magazine.
1: That's awesome. What brought you to the US?
0: My father got fired. My father was the CEO of a dairy company, a mid-sized dairy company. And my father was a, I don't want to say arrogant, but my father was a confident man. And so he was pushing the envelope. And there is a thing in the German way, the boards, the board of directors are run, where they can ask a, what's called a confidence question. And the confidence question is, do we still have confidence that this leader is the right leader for our company? And they really just wanted to teach him a lesson. They never intended to fire him. They never intended that they would get the majority of the votes, but they did. And mm-hmm. so as the majority then says, we don't have confidence in this leader, it meant one thing, immediate termination. And so the company didn't even have an interim replacement. That's how mm-hmm. ill-prepared they were for that. And my father was laid off a of fire such. Of course, it was like a whole big thing with severance and whatever that was. Sure. but. But I looked at this and I said, oh, I'm now the photo at L magazine. Let's face it, people would do anything for me because I would be able to get them a spread in, in L magazine or so they thought. But at least I could get them in the door and get their work in front of the art director or the, the fashion editor. And I was really... Concerned that I was going to go down that road, the asshole route, where I become then a person that is only identified by the work that they do and not by who they are. And I quit. And six weeks later, I left.
1: Mm. Wow. The. At this time I take it you've moved on from the Bay City Rollers so I'm going back to music for a little bit. So talk about as you're going through young adulthood and college what kind of music was you listening to?
0: Yeah, when I was in photography in in those early years, I remember I don't remember it as much just because it was so ridiculously busy, but I do remember when I was coming when I came to the United States and just because of the artists that we have in available in Los Angeles, just the whole thing. And I would listen to the Fugees and loved Lauryn Hill, loved, loved a lot of the, I have a very eclectic taste from 07 to Massive Attack to, I love the Thievery Corporation because I think they have an an unbelievable beat. So I like a lot of Uh, The chill music before it was chill music, before it was like these international sounds that first came through when music wasn't just an English text, but when when things opened up and as I was leaving Germany, the Neue Deutsche Welle was a big thing. Story about Nina, the 99 red balloons. Nina was the office manager for a photographer by the name of Jim Rakete and jim rakete is an icon not just in the music world but also in the photography world in germany he lives in lives in berlin and i loved jim because I, as a photo editor that was one of my connections and we became friends and so jim famously as he was looking as was looking at the lyrics he said to nina why don't you go and sing the song? And she wasn't a musician. And so she just took the mic and sang the song. And that's how this whole thing became became too. And then fast forward to a couple of years later when I'm in Los Angeles and I'm living with a roommate that Jim introduced me to, who was his other office manager who came after Nina had left. And she was friends with Nina and the whole band was here at the time. So we we ended up living together and then Nina was here in Los Angeles. She tried to, with the band, to get a footing, but I don't think anybody ever knows any other song than the 99 Red Balloons that, that the right. band did. That is the iconic song. And so they were about to move back to Germany, buy furniture, because that was broke and brand new. So we didn't have money to buy furniture. We didn't have a couch. We didn't have a dining table. We didn't have chairs. But when Nina's band moved back to Germany, we got all the furniture. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so that was the furniture in my house. It was the sofa with with the Chinese characters, the whatever, the red and the black, which was completely yeah. fashionable back then. And uh, yeah, so that's my story with Nena.
1: That is awesome. Talk about a brush with greatness, right? <laughs> it's like butcher. That is how often on an icebreaker, they'll ask you to say two truths and a lie. And be right. I got my furniture from the Nina who does 99 balloons. <laughs> That's awesome. You talked a little bit uh, in when we discussed, you t- said how much you loved seeing Lauren Hill. Tell me a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, so Lauren Hill is. So when you. I like to not just listen to the music, but I like to experience the music in the sense where if I hear the story, and when you hear Lauren's story of how, when she performs and she performed that the Greek, she tells the story. She got pregnant, and then they told her that it was a really bad idea to have a baby, and she wrote a song about it where. She was actually advised to not have the child, but she wanted the child. And all the decisions that she as a female artist had to make that made her, pushed her to get in charge of her career as an as a musician. And so you listen to that and you go, man, men don't ever have to make these decisions about on whether or not they're going to have a child or not, and whether or not they can go on tour if they're a parent or not. And that's a... That's a, a woman decision. Pink is another one of my my the artists that I like just because she's so badass. If I ever wanted to meet anybody, please make me meet her. Okay, um, we're throwing that out to the M. It's- I I would love to have her on my show just talk about overcoming your own limitations and becoming such a professional and so clear about what you want to do and then making it happen. Uh, it's just so inspiring. But so when I saw Lauren Hill and then she's at the Greek. There's this moment in the performance and I'm there with my daughter because we share this love of performance. And our thing, my daughter and my thing is that every time when we see a show, we do a full on debrief. We talk about every song we go. She was a little flat there. I can't believe that happened. That was so powerful. Nope. Didn't hit the notes. Sorry, girl. So we, and it's because we're both enjoy it. So we've seen so much that we talk yeah, about it like sure. you would talk about with another artist. Is what do you think? Sorry, Jesse, you didn't hit that high C there. I don't know what it was. I've never seen you do that before. Was what was happening? Thanks for letting me know. I wasn't sure. That's what artists do. We look at our exactly. craft and then we get better. It's, it's constructive criticism because you always have to work on your craft. And so she's there and she's improvising. And then she goes and she just like literally just stops and you can tell she's going somewhere. She turns around to the band and she goes, okay, give me whatever, give me like a D or whatever. And let's try this. And she goes, "No," and I have a terrible voice. So please forgive me for that. But she goes and then they'll play it back. And then she goes, no, let's try a half a tone lower. And then she goes, okay, now I want you to add a, I want you to add a little bit more drums. And she's doing this in real time. And my daughter and I, we're looking at each other. I'm like, that is an artist. That's an artist who, can, who gets inspired in the moment in front of a live audience without ever even thinking about on whether that's in the script, whether it's going to take five minutes long or not. She's just following that. And easily one of the artists I would love to see again, just because of that that vibe. Another artist I would love to see again is the Thievery Corporation because it's such a big band and there's so many people and they're so diverse and it just has such a recognizable beat. I think I danced through the entire concert in the pit, which I don't like being in the pit because I don't like being around and close to many other people, but that I did really love.
1: I, I love that story. I will uh, send you a link Bruce was doing for a while at a previous tour, sign request. The audience, he would pick up a sign and someone suggested the Chuck Berry's Never Can Tell. And the video includes him trying to tell the horns what key and they do this together. You watch them figure it out similar to what you're talking about Lauren Hill did. And I love that when it's a spontaneity, that, that this idea of I, I want to get creative, I want to try this. And it if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but that's OK. And, and to have that confidence that the audience is with you, we are ready to go on this journey together is just really beautiful. I would have liked to have been there, too. That's great. Um, but you have, you did mention there's a band that you tend to follow the most and tell me a little bit about them.
0: I love that punk.
1: Okay. (laughs) Now, can you remember when you first found them and what about their music spoke to you?
0: It was just this like earworm. I don't even know what, what the song is called off the top of my head right now, but it was just my daughter played it in the car. That's what it was. And and i'm like and she goes mama you're doing like the head bopping thing and i said i do and i said it's so good it's just so good and you know what it reminds me of now that i talk about it, it reminds me of kraftwerk because i also have a
1: story with kraftwerk okay i'd love to hear the story so when i
0: was when i before i went to photography school i had a summer open and i became an intern at a photography lab
1: Mm-hmm.
0: one of the women that worked there was the wife of the founder okay just as Kraftwerk became you know this big thing with fun of the Autobahn which means driving on the freeway and I think Def Punk reminds me a little bit like I feel the influences from that beat because it hasn't it's clearly hardcore electronica but there's just something about it that just creates an emotion that you didn't have. And Kraftwerk was very early on in the discovery of electronica. And Jean-Michel Jarre, which I, who I just saw in Los Angeles last year, phenomenal show. And they did the lasers with his music, unbelievable. So I like that Def Punk is almost like, to me, like the evolution of a lot of the early electronica music that I listened to. Fast forward today in a much more modern setting. So that's why I love them.
1: I always like to preface this question. The amount of times you've seen a band perform live is not a fair barometer of how big of a fan you are. There are people that have never seen their favorite artists just because of circumstances. And there's other people that if it's the right time they've seen them tons. Have you been able to see them live? And if so, do you count how many shows?
0: No, I have not seen them live. I wished I, I would. I think that the problem with concerts right now is that they're so cost prohibitive. We just had Taylor Swift in Los Angeles doing a four-day show and yeah. the average fee you spend is like $1,300. Um, yeah. I understand when you are at the top, you can bank it in, but look at the Madonna tour right now and what the tickets are. The Eagles tour, it's incredibly cost prohibitive to to see an artist live. We do see artists live there but i don't really like seeing a lot of people twice honestly because i i went to john legend i do not need to see john legend again i was we were so disappointed so disappointed it was a flat show they were he just couldn't he just couldn't connect to the audience i just saw regina specter who is like a more folksy folksy singer her and she literally did a one woman show, a one woman show in the Greek in Los wow, Angeles. That's impressive. And she handled that audience like a pro with her professionalism and just her natural demeanor. I did not, I didn't, I did not feel that from John Legend. I was like, dude, why are you letting me down? But but that's why I keep going back to Lauren Hill. That's an artist I would see again just because I know I'm going to see something different. I'm going to see an artist who hear the same thing over and over and over again.
1: Yeah,
0: I want to be. For that, I can't just go and and listen to the song of, in in the car. Sure. Yeah, I want to see a performance. I want to see a performer.
1: Yeah. Have you ever seen Bruce live?
0: No, okay. never. Yeah, no. Bruce and I, we have a. I have an interesting feeling about him. He feels coming from Europe. He feels very American in his music, and I think that's his appeal. Which is why the joke is when, you know, certain politicians play Born in the USA at certain rallies and you go, dude, have you like checked the lyrics?
1: I, <laughs> I remember when a certain ex-president was in the hospital for COVID and his list was fans were playing that. I don't think they know what this song means.
0: <laughs> yeah. So that, there is a, that there's a part about where I just lack the relatability to his music because I didn't grow up here. I, I wasn't, I came here after the Vietnam war. So a lot of the protest music just didn't resonate with me because I couldn't relate to that for the longest time. I felt weird about, I didn't even know what a Vietnam vet was, what that meant. It just took me some time to really understand because the information we were told, it was also very selective until all the information came out. So I admire his longevity with this and I admire that his fan base continues to be inspired by him. And that's really how we judge an artist, even if it's not our artist per se, is like, what is the message? And is there a true connection with a particular piece of audience? Because that's my consultants and coaches and, and people who are selling stuff to other people. That's always what we look for. What's the engagement with our prospect, with our audience and are we inspiring them? Are we doing what we set out to do? And he seems to clearly do that. So for that, I can totally respect that. Would I now go home and play a whole bunch of Bruce Springsteen songs? No, I wouldn't.
1: Okay, that's okay. It's all right. Everyone has different thoughts. Let's talk a little bit about the podcast. So why did you decide to start a podcast? And first, tell my listeners what the podcast is and your what its purpose.
0: Yeah, so my podcast is called The Business Growth Architect Show. And the purpose of the podcast is to help people to understand how to strategically approach having a business and building a business and growing a business and scaling a business. And my goal is to take things that other people make incredibly complicated because they want to sell you high ticket items. Not to say that I don't eventually want to sell you a high ticket item. I do. But the purpose of this really is my mission is to impact because my value is that my impact is measured by the impact I'm help you make. So if I help you make an impact, then my impact is guaranteed. If I don't help you make an impact, then I'm not fulfilling my purpose. And we did this on on purpose as a company, because we wanted to make sure that we are driven by the right set of motivation that we're here to serve other people to make an impact, which means I want to give you the information so you can go out, share your message with more people. And then whatever that message is, will resonate with more people because we help you to fine tune that. And so the, the show is mostly about that. I bring people on from sales, from marketing, from branding to help you understand what that really means. And we focus on very specific things. I just interviewed somebody who is a the CEO of one of the top sales training companies currently in the world. And there's just something about him that I really like because when he has these sales conversations, they don't feel like a sales conversation, but he's clearly selling, but there's just something that he has. And then he said something to me in the interview, which I never heard. And I always look for the things I haven't heard. So that's how we build our clients. We look for the things we haven't heard. And he says, a lot of people have imposter syndrome. He says, but I look at this way. If I'm in the room with you, I'm in the room with you because of my subject matter expertise. You can have a subject matter expertise in your subject matter but that doesn't mean that you're better than I am. Even if you are higher up than I am technically or you're a billionaire and I'm I'm only a millionaire, but in that moment where I meet you, I'm in that room because I'm a sales expert and I'm probably better at that than you are.
1: It's interesting. That's nice.
0: And I thought game changer for any sales conversation.
1: Yeah, I I like that. I know it's hard to generalize, but is there an overall... Theme that you see that people who are trying to be entrepreneurs, trying to grow their business, is there one or two common misconceptions or missteps that they take?
0: Yes. And typically, the, the number one thing that I see is they start just following bad advice without ever sitting down and thinking about what's the strategy I want to follow. It's really not that difficult. You got to figure out what is the goal? Where do you want to go? Because the business model is driven by what you want to do and by you don't by what you don't want to do. So if you're not a good public speaker, then the strategy shouldn't involve public speaking. Please don't take Pete Vargas's course because that's all about public speaking. Then you want to take a course how to be a good podcast guest. That's probably more more along the lines. Still gets you in front of a lot of people. You're still speaking, but you you don't have to break out in hives. And people don't know that they can build a business model that actually suits their lifestyle. I just had a conversation on my podcast with a woman who is a Christian and she had to really decide on whether or not she was going to take her belief and her faith into her business brand. And she did. And so we talk about that. What does that take? Because that model has to fit her and she's a, she's very devout Christian. So that fit her model and it works for her. So you need to, as you step out into your business, you get very clear who are you and, and what makes you different and unique. And then instead of apologizing for that, you have to double down on that. And then once you know that, then we can create the strategy on how to get you there because we know where you are right now. We know where you want to go and then we decide the strategy. That's what I do. So I help you to decide the strategy and then we look at what we need to add to that to make that happen. But people go and they look at this promise that people make the ethical persuasion, and they fall for it because they believe that this ethical persuasion language, which is built on psychology and persuasion techniques, is helping them to identify something that they didn't know, whereas it more often than not sells to your fears. And that makes them rich and you confused. So that's, to me, the biggest mistake I see. Please get your strategy in place before you buy anything.
1: Yeah. If you don't know where you're going, how do you know when you're going to get there? It's yeah. or no.
0: Yeah. Or anyway, yeah. we'll get you there.
1: Yeah. And so I, I understand. Um, gosh, this has been fascinating. I hope you've had as much fun as I have. I did. Uh, before I get to the Mary question, any final thoughts?
0: I I would just say to your audience is like, wherever you are, wherever you're listening, please make sure that wherever you pick up this podcast, you go there right now and give Jesse a five-star review and a comment. And here's why the comment really truly matters. It is a signal to the algorithm that has become impossibly difficult with 2.3 million podcasts is even if you put a green heart in it, which means that you listen to the full episode, It makes all the difference in the world. And then share this podcast with one other person that might need to hear this or needs to be entertained by what we have said today. And then the second thing right after that, what I would say is don't take failure personal. I recommend you to look at failure by the example that I use. And it's like a GPS in your car, right? So you go to your car, the GPS says, update me, new navigation system available, update available, but you don't have time. So you're busy. You got to get there. You got to go to soccer practice. You got to do this. You got to do that. And then one day, inevitably that road that you've taken the shortcut is now a cul-de-sac because of are building the freeway. Boom. There you are. So now you're going to get out of the car. You're going to throw yourself in the middle of the street. You're going to throw a temper tantrum. You're going to go, I'm the worst driver in the world. This will never happen. That's it. I'm going to sell the car. Insurance too expensive. I hate driving the car. Freeways suck. People suck. Insurances suck. You get into your car, you wave at the person with the hard hat and the neon outfit with a little reflective stripe, and you say, got it, update the GPS, can't take this road anymore. And shockingly, the destination that you set out to reach, you still know that is still there. So that's never even been a question on whether the destination is still there. It's just not that way. So from here on out, I want you to look at failure, literally just like a cul-de-sac, that was build while you weren't paying attention and find another way.
1: I, One of the things that I do as a support leader is I try to tell my team, look for a way to say yes. There's going to be a lot of ways to say no, and that's easier. But when you get someone calling for help, let's look for a way to say yes. Let's look for a way to be there for someone. This is awesome. All right. Jay Armstrong was a honors English teacher. He's now retired. He's a writer. But when he was teaching, he would give his students the lyrics to Bruce Springsteen's Thunder Road, and they would discuss it as if it was a poem. They would talk about the lyrics. They would talk about the imagery, the themes Bruce's explores. And at the end of the day, he would ask his class, does Mary get in the car? Bionton, that is your question. Does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road?
0: So here's my challenge with this. Okay. So number one, I really don't like how he's talking about her woman to woman, because if somebody says, look, let's face it, you're really not that pretty, but you're okay. By that time, I will already have punched you in the nose and we are over because nobody gets to talk to me like that. This this almost, I I, I hate to say, it, but I have to say it. It's almost like this loser-like attitude. It's like, look, I know who I am. I'm totally flawed. I look at you, let's face it, you're flawed and let's look at the guys you've been with and they're really all losers. And let's face it, we're in a town where there's all losers. What do you say? Let's get away. So the objective of Mary's mindset then would have to be, I have that kind of self-awareness, which frankly I'm challenged with because if she had (laughs) self-awareness, would she be continuously going out with losers or listen to a guy that tells her she's not that pretty So I say she does not get in the car.
1: That is an excellent answer. My wife always says, no, she called her, he called her ugly. So absolutely great answer. I I love that answer. Thank you so much. Uh, If someone wants to reach you, tell them how.
0: Yes, go ahead and reach out to me. I'm all over social media under my name, Beate Chalette or The Growth Architect, and drop into my DM, say hello. Make sure you mention this show so I know where you're coming from. If you have a takeaway, please share it. And if you heard anything, you say, I must speak to this woman, go to uncoverysession.com. Again, make sure you mention the show. Then we'll gift you a 15-minute complimentary Uncovery session with our business growth advisor to talk, shop, and brainstorm a little bit about how we can help you to take your business to the next level. And if you want to know what your business growth blocker is. If you have a business, go to uh, growthblockerquiz.com. It's a free quiz. And in three minutes, I can help you identify exactly why that business is stuck or not growing or what you need to do to set it on the right path.
1: That is awesome. This was wonderful. I had so much fun. I hope you did Everyone go to the website, check it out. Check out her podcast. Yes, give her a five-star and comment review. It really does make a difference. We're going to end with give a little love, take a little love, be prepared to forsake a little love, and when the sun comes shining through, we'll know what to do. The greatness of the Bay City Rollers. (laughs) Listeners, thank you for (laughs) listening. Be safe, be kind. And we'll talk to you soon. There we go, another episode. I'm about to go through a couple of things where you can reach me and give me feedback. Um, so if you want to skip this, I understand, but I do hope you check it out every once in a while. I'm available on Twitter at Jesse Jackson DFW. The show is available at setlusting Bruce. You can send me an email, setlustingbruce at gmail.com. You can send me a voicemail at 469-249-2442. I am currently doing a few other podcasts, perfectly good podcast, John Hyatt from A to Z, where Sylvan Groth and I discuss every John Hyatt song in alphabetical order. My Babylon 5 podcast is Last Best Hope for Conversation where Lou, Karen, and I discuss every episode of Babylon 5 in chronological order. I still am doing Next Stop Everywhere, the Doctor Who podcast with my brother in time, Charles Gaggs, And then finally, How Many Podcasts, the only podcast on the internet that counts, where my buddies and I discuss pop culture. You can go to our Patreon page, and support the podcast for as little as a dollar a month. You can go to our Facebook page, like, and please, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and leave a five-star rating and review for all of the podcasts that I'm doing. It's okay if you don't listen to them, but if you subscribe and rate, it really will make my day better. Thank you, and I will talk to you soon. Just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music oven, album ranking, fan thanking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only Set Listing Bruce. The theme for Set Listing Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission.